0: I'm so glad I get to talk to you today, Andy. I have many questions for you, but first I want to know, are you doing school? Are you doing school? Uh,
1: Well, we have three little ones. We got a nine-year-old who is in fourth grade and then twins who are seven who are in second grade. And my wife has been absolutely amazing on this. Um, uh, Every day, trying to put together activities, we're doing a bunch of reading to them. Um, We're getting some materials from their school. Uh, and that becomes a much bigger and interesting question, like the materials we get, what's online, what's not. Um, but yeah, it's not like we're free-range parenting. We're actually like trying to take seriously the idea of um, trying to get activities and reading and math. And uh, we've been doing things like Shakespeare and King Arthur's Tales and uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey. My kids became addicted so cool. to Greek mythology. Yeah, so we're trying a lot of things.
0: Which is fun. I mean, that's obviously one big takeaway is the extreme variability. Because I've been online looking at um, Missouri school districts, especially, and I want to get on to this later. The small rural school districts and what they've been able to do, and it's extremely limited. Maybe they pass out packets. Maybe they put a worksheet um, on the website. In some cases, they take a picture of it with a phone and they post it up to the website. You know, and it's not sure. though. It's not as so though they're not trying, but I just think the gap between, you know, um, big suburban schools and these small rural ones has just really grown or been exposed.
1: Well, I would go even further than that, Um, or maybe I have a slightly different take, and you can correct me if you think I'm wrong on this, which is um, based on what I'm reading and what I've seen and even like the anecdotal stuff that I'm going through, is I wouldn't draw any conclusions nationally. I wouldn't draw any conclusions by state, I wouldn't draw any conclusions by district, I wouldn't draw any conclusions by rurality or um, suburban, urban. I won't even draw conclusions by school based on what I'm seeing. Um, You can have a school that is relatively high functioning within a relatively high functioning district and because it was never in the job description of the vast majority of America's teachers to suddenly on a dime switch to online learning, we should not assume, and uh, we're seeing examples of that in a single school. The online, bl- blended, um, remote learning experiences of kids in different classes, even within a grade, can be different. Sure, I mean I
0: hear that from my from my friends who are parents who have like two or three kids in the same school, and they're using five or six different platforms, and some are doing a lot, and some are doing a little. And I, I think that's absolutely right. And then you know you're putting the onus onto the parents, and not every parent's going to be engaged like you are right and so in fact a lot of them are at work so um then then no matter what the teacher's putting out i mean i was speaking to a guy a couple weeks ago who's a high school teacher in kansas city he's tfa but he's just trying to reach his kids i mean he's trying to get them to engage in any way shape or form and it's hard to track them down so i think you're absolutely right about that but like the ones i'm looking at we have in missouri we have maybe 50 school districts with fewer than 100 students in the district. Mm. And they, a lot of them don't have websites, and so they communicate via Facebook. And you can go to the Facebook page and try to, like, follow the feeds and see what's been going on. But um, I do think that if kids don't go back to school next year, those are the areas where we're going to see, like, real problems. And, of course, broadband access is a problem for us here, too, right? Can we
1: Can we just pause on your previous point? Because I think this yeah. is something that... Um, I don't know how wide your uh, listenership is, but this is a point that I think... Very
0: wide. uh, Extremely, extremely wide.
1: Well, this is something that a lot of policy wonks, um, and certainly journalists, and especially the people who work in big cities ought to become aware of, which is, and you glossed over this because you're in a state where you guys kind of take this for granted, and when I was in New Jersey, I understood that, understood this. But if you you were living in a city, New York, like they have a school district with 1.1 million kids, Los Angeles School District has over 700,000 kids. Chicago, I think, has in the neighborhood of 400,000 kids. Um, Most big urban areas where most elite people live, they are accustomed to gigantic school districts. And because they have gigantic school districts, they're accustomed to a central office that has an outrageous number of central administrative staff that can be put toward scalable things like online learning, curriculum development, and so forth. Most people don't realize that the average school district in America still today has like seven schools. And that's even skewed because you have these high-end districts that um, warp the average. I wouldn't be surprised if the median school district has more like five schools in it. And so there are I mean, I think we have, uh, in the neighborhood of 14,000 school districts nationwide, Mm -hmm, and New York and Los Angeles and Chicago and the other big ones we think of are such outliers. Mm -hmm. So many of them have one, two, three schools, maybe only a K-8 school and a high school. We have a lot of those. Most of them have, in some cases, there are districts where, like, the high school principal is also the district superintendent, Mm -hmm. and if you ask them, um, how many people work in your tech department, they'll say, what tech department? Mm -hmm. So, like, for people on the outside, especially if you're writing for a big publication, it can be, um, it's just, they can be shell-shocked that, like, oh, my heavens, why has the transition to remote learning been so hard? Well, teachers were never told to do this. Districts never, like, had the capacity in many cases. And asking them to go from one thing to another overnight, and they have no training and no staff, well, of course it's going to be bumpy like this. Sure. But, But most of the people who make the news um, and uh, report on the news are in systems that have way more capacity than what a lot of the country looks like. And I'm seeing that disconnect.
0: I am too. And you brought this up, New Jersey. So just um, very quickly, what did you do in New Jersey and what did you do in Maryland?
1: Okay. Just like
0: a little background on Andy Smerik would be helpful.
1: Sure. I was the deputy commissioner of education for the New Jersey Department of Education at the very beginning of... Uh, Chris Christie's administration, I was up there for two or three years. I worked underneath of Chris Cerf when he was the commissioner, um, and so this was during the race to the top era, the NCLB waiver era, so still Obama time. Uh, but because of this, I got to know a whole lot of these 600 school districts mm-hmm. like when I when I got to New Jersey. And people started talking about K-8 districts. I didn't <laughs> I didn't know what they were talking about. Um, I grew up in Maryland, and then we ended up moving back here, where we have. Maryland has about the same number of people as New Jersey, a a little bit less, but it's comparable. And uh, Maryland has 24 school districts, whereas New Jersey has 600-ish. And so I was totally accustomed to the idea of um, a gigantic school district with 100, 150 schools, tens of thousands of students. And in New Jersey, um, there could be a school that only has a district that has just one school, and they have a send and receive relationship for high schools. Um, like their kids go through eighth grade and then they send them off to other districts for high school. So I got much more familiar with rural areas, small districts, and all of the uh, challenges they have. Now in Maryland, um, I worked for the state legislature there early in my career, worked for congressman there. Uh, and then more recently, I did a term on the Maryland State Board of Education, two years as the president. And um, that ended a year and a half, two years ago. And I was recently confirmed by the state senate uh, for a five-year term on the Maryland Higher Education Commission, so kind of comparable higher ed to the K-12 board that I was on um, during Larry Hogan's first term.
0: That's got to be challenging. I want to get to higher ed, too. There's so many things. Basically, the rural thing for me is what I'm kind of focused on right now, just because that's what's really emerged in Missouri is a lot of kids are getting almost no education. And partly, I wouldn't expect you to know much about Missouri, but partly, just prior to the school shutdown, um, we had only just allowed students to take classes online yeah. like a year. There had been a virtual program and districts were highly resistant. And so parents were literally hiring lawyers to sue yep. to get their kids access to this virtual education program because, and the rural areas are some of the ones that are really resistant. In fact, you you probably know uh, my colleague, Mike McShane, he did an analysis of course offerings in Missouri, and like 30% of our high schools don't offer calculus. And yet they don't want their kids to be able to take calculus online for reasons that I still struggle with, but very resistant to virtual education. So now here we are, and we kind of have a small structure in place called the Missouri Course Access Program, but they weren't prepared to take short-term students. And parents in rural areas, if their school's not teaching, they might want to access something out of state, perhaps, or access something on their own, and they don't have we don't have any scholarship programs to allow them to do that. Still very controversial in this state.
1: Well, yeah, and this is, I think, the biggest policy point that we, and maybe practical point that um, folks need to grapple with when this is all all over, which is, one thing I learned from school choice and chartering is that charter schooling and private school choice um, are so different than the conventional system that On paper, you can plan as much as possible, but then when you try to start to implement it, you recognize how many hangups there are that you didn't even see. And so now we have 25, 30 years worth of experience with charters, so we can see this. So who owns the facilities when you have a charter law? How do you deal with who owns buses or transportation routes? How do you deal with special education provision? How do you deal with per pupil allotments and how much a district is able to uh, withhold? I mean, those are just some of the examples that you couldn't even really predict that you had to work yourself through over time in order to solve. So what I'm seeing in most states and districts is um, online learning is not new in general, like Florida's been doing it for a long time, some states have some experience, but they have the blessing, if nothing else, of having already fallen in a bunch of ditches and figured out how to get out of them. Everything from who are our providers? Where are we getting the content? Do we have enough bandwidth? Do we have enough um, devices? Do our teachers know what to do? Do we know how to monitor our students? And a hundred other things that you can imagine. So part of the difference in the ability, I think, of states and districts and schools and teachers to deal with this, like, turn on the switch suddenly because of COVID go to online learning, the big difference often is just straight up experience. Sure. Have you been doing this for four, five, six, ten 10 years, um, or is this brand spanking new to you? And in lots of places, it's not just a matter of capacity or devices, it's like, um, oh, we didn't realize that a lot of our teachers actually don't know how to use this kind of program and don't know how to upload material, and we don't know if our state policy actually allows us to require the work and use sure, it for grading we, purposes?
0: Yeah, we've like, been going through that. And also parents getting exhausted. So some districts are like, we're going to get online every day. We're going to grade. We're going to do all these things. Got pushback. And so they're doing like Friday optionals and the grades aren't counting anymore, which, again, that's a learning experience. It's sort of like telling every teacher in the state, that had to teach in Spanish. You know what I mean? They're like, I'm not prepared to teach in Spanish. And so I get that. But like Florida virtual program has been open for 20 years. I think their capacity down is like 2.7 million students. Missouri parents could tap into Florida virtual. There's a tuition charge and the state could cover it. They have been through a lot of what you said, but I
1: didn't know that. So is that like, so how would that work that Florida would just charge the district tuition and that either like the Missouri state or district would just essentially treat them as a private provider?
0: They are private providers. So they have public school students, charter school students, and private school students. They have international students. They've always had a private school provider component to Florida Virtual. And so I knew people in Virginia who were enrolled in Florida Virtual, but had to pay the tuition.
1: So a district in Missouri conceivably, when this hit, could have immediately contracted with Florida Virtual and said, can you provide some number of hours worth of content or instruction to our students for the rest of the school year could have uh, right that's probably an operative word we're very
0: very we don't have any private school choice in the state we have charter schools only in our two major cities because they because of low performance and so we don't even have statewide charter schools uh we're very resistant to this idea and um I don't know if it's going to change now. I mean, a lot of people are talking about safety scholarships because even if your school opens in the fall, not every parent's going to be ready to send their children out the door and into that building. Mm-hmm. And so sort of like Florida has scholarships for bullying. These would be scholarships for kids who, whose parents don't think they're safe in that building right now. So that would be like an emergency scholarship. I don't know if we'll even make progress on that. I I think we're going to, unfortunately, I feel like we're going to wait until like August or September and then see what happens.
1: So one thing I've been thinking about is that old saying, necessity is the mother of invention. Me too. And uh, you probably remember this. Some of your younger listeners won't. We'll be dating ourselves here. But do you remember, or maybe this is just me. Um, no. uh, I remember when Private school choice was getting started, you know, with Milwaukee and then Cleveland, and everyone kept saying Milwaukee and Cleveland, you know, these are the first programs. But I think it was Maine or oh, Maine and
0: Vermont, both.
1: They came forward and said, no, 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 no. We've actually had a private school choice program for a while now, um, going back decades, because a lot of our districts don't have high schools, and so we have a program where we allow some number of kids if there is an accessible public school to go to a private school. So they developed a set of programs with money attached to them and legal protections just based on necessity. And they kind of work their way through that. I'm wondering if something similar is going to start to happen here with this online thing. Like I'm not predicting that we are going to see a mass revolution and millions of families are going to, um, just suddenly decide next year that they want this, but for your exact point, like the safety thing, if a district has half of its parents say, come September, I don't feel good about my kids going to school, is like in theory when like unions or other groups or rural districts or a school boards association says we don't want to do online learning for whatever kind of recalcitrant reasons, but now all of a sudden like they are forced to figure out how to make this work. Mm -hmm. Is is it possible that just like the necessity between now and September one of uh, the coming school year that something happens that all of a sudden all of these obstacles, it seems that they could be overcome, they become overcome? That, I think like, so. The system figures out because they have no other choice.
0: Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. I think you're going to find that, you know perhaps, districts that don't feel they have the capacity to offer dual systems, like an online one for the kids who don't want to come, and an in-person one for the kids who do want to come, will have to outsource that online thing and say, look, we're going to work on the in-person part, and you can go to, like, a Florida virtual, or we do have the Missouri Course Access Program, although it doesn't yet have elementary grades, I don't think, so they're going to have to work on that a little bit, or Uncommon Schools is making their whole curriculum um, open source, you know, they may send... Yeah, and it's very high quality. And they decided yeah. to make it free. Uh, Academica, they have all of their, I think they have tens of thousands of students logging in every day wearing their uniforms. They've got a completely turnkey program. So could you let parents access that, which would seem easier to me than teachers continuing to like print the packets, let the parents pick up the packets. It's hard to grade. It's hard um my other colleagues, James Schulz, his wife's a teacher, and she's doing so much email because you can't just have a back and forth with the kid. You have to have like an email back and forth if you're not on a Zoom call or something, and it just takes up a lot more time. So I think yep. there's going to have to be some sort of a divide and conquer there too. I I, I don't know, so much is unknown. And another thing I want to ask you about is, you know, private schools are really going to take a hit here. Correct. And I know you've written a lot about the value in having a system of private schools and why we should um, try to take care of them, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've been writing kind of like the long obituary of urban faith-based schools and going back to 2004, 2005 probably. And the good news is, yes, there have been lots of closures, which is heartbreaking, but a lot of these schools that have been around in some cases for a century have figured out um, how to get by. They're always on the razor's edge. But through a combination of you know grit and you know, duct tape and philanthropy and a little bit of tuition, um, they stay open. It may well be the case that this is the kind of disruption that causes um, not just like a small spike in the number of annual closures we see, which can be in the dozens or you know a hundred or so. Um, uh, do we see five hundred closures in the next year of especially these small, private schools that had been in urban areas and have been buffeted by like a set of factors going back to 1965 changes in demographics changes in income charter schools all that and somehow they've held on maybe this makes it too much so this is one of those things that may very well have a adverse effect on what you and i and lots of others just adore about like the pluralism the pluralistic possibilities of this other sector of schools um a lot of these options could go away
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, again, I'm like, uh, not to sound like a broken record, but again, it part of like a secondary benefit to giving parents scholarship money would be that they could take it to a private school, which would, if you follow this logic, help the private schools, maybe help them stay afloat and also put fewer bodies in the public schools when we need to seemingly have fewer bodies. And uh, to me, it's a win-win. And it's also a lower cost because I'm I'm sure you well know, uh, public education budgets are going to be decimated. They're going to take it. It's going to be bad, right? So you get some kids out of the building, which you need, you get them into a private school, which is helpful. And it's a, you know, a fraction of the cost. It seems to me like that's got to be a solution that states are thinking about if they don't already do it.
1: Yeah, this budget thing is something that there's been way too little conversation about yet, but I think it's going to be everything come this fall. So most state legislatures, you know, are part-time and most of them come back into session in January, um, uh, early in the year. I don't know what Missouri's is like. January, yeah. Okay, so... Yeah, what people I don't think have grappled with is the fact that the economy has tanked, lots of people are unemployed, state revenue is going to crater, district revenue is going to crater, we're going to have a bunch of kids who are behind, at least behind in what our state tests and standards say they should be, we're going to be saying these kids need to get caught up, we need extra programming, the state isn't going to have money to just even meet their prior obligations, let alone the supplemental stuff, districts are going to be hemorrhaging money and so you're going to have kids who've been out of school they might have social emotional learning um deficits that we need to overcome in addition to like the accountability deficits on like reading and math scores that they're going to have to somehow by next spring catch up on and there's not going to be much money to do any of this so um I know in a lot of states, like the like legislative committees really start thinking in November, December, making projections about what are state revenues gonna be. Legislature sure. comes into session in January, February, they do some budget stuff, usually by April or May. They try to have a budget um, set for the rest of the year. And in most cases, states have to have balanced budgets. They can't they just can't float a bunch of money, um, like do a big stimulus and not worry about deficits. Um I mean, I I don't know how it's going to be anything other than, in every single state, um, at least the state's portion going to K-12 education is going to fall precipitously. Same thing presumably in, I don't know, 90% of districts. There could be some districts where the economy didn't collapse and they'll be fine. But the lack of money is going to be like the full story. like, how do you mitigate all the damage that's been done in the past on a, stru- uh, stru- a shoestring budget? I, I have no idea.
0: You described Missouri perfectly. That's exactly our process. And the districts right now, from what I hear, are being told, don't worry about the 2021 school year. We're going to keep funding level because, you know, the budget, our legislature's passing it like today. Um, that's sort of based on what they guess the budget is going to be. And then the 21-22 school school year supposedly is when this is going to set in and that's going to be when um there's you know we have 15 percent unemployment here too like everywhere like it's just we uh medicaid is taking up a huge portion of the budget and that's just not going to change um there isn't we don't have a lot of fat i mean we don't have places to take it from we were already um pretty thin and they're 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 taking it from higher ed already Mm -hmm. that's going to happen And we don't know if students are gonna come back in the fall. What do you think? I mean, it's like, are you gonna come into a dorm? I mean, that's the customer base. That's gonna hurt. Right. I think a lot of your small schools um, are gonna struggle.
1: That could be a story, yeah. Um, Again, something that not a lot of people know is I think higher education, especially four-year institutions, have seen a decade worth of enrollment losses consecutively. And this is not necessarily a reflection on, yes, public opinion has soured on higher education generally. It's not like underwater, but it's not good. Um, But this is mostly just a demographic issue. Um, Fewer kids in like an age cohort going to college. So there have already been a lot of colleges that have been struggling Um, during boom times. They had been building all these lovely gyms and dorms. So they're already under some financial strain, but some of these smaller liberal arts schools, especially if they have uh, wealthy kids who um, uh, aren't interested in putting themselves at risk and would rather do stuff at home, yes, like I'm worried about small private K-8 um, urban like Catholic schools going underwater, but I wouldn't be surprised if in a year from now you and I are talking about 10, 15, 20, 30 higher education institutions mm-hmm. that are wondering if they can keep the lights on.
0: Yeah, I think that that's going to be a problem here. Uh, I know. That FAFSA applications, federal student aid applications, are down by 250,000 already this year. So, fewer people are filling that out to go. That's right. And so, I I think some of our local schools are seeing drops of 20% in uh, committed enrollments. And, you know, if the Cal State system said that they're going to start online in the fall. So, Mm -hmm. I don't know how many people are going to want to pay full tuition to take everything online. I don't know. Now, of course, you've got some programs that were kind of, um, I don't know if they anticipated anything like this, but like Global Purdue that Mitch Daniels runs uh, Uh already went online, was already, you know, their tuition's been flat, like they're thriving, uh, but they were very forward thinking. A lot of schools are kind of stuck in the past. And in both K-12 and higher ed, we've had what, uh, you know, people refer to as the staffing surge, where You know, there's just been a decision after decision to grow the uh, workforce, even when the enrollment isn't growing. And now you've got commitments and pension commitments and all kinds of stuff that's going to make it that much harder to adjust your expenditures.
1: Agreed with all of that. And there's like a higher level conceptual question that I, as like a sort of like Rootsy, Berkian, Tocquevillian, conservative, like I'm really curious about, which is I've always been somewhat of a skeptic of the buoyant claims of the disruptive technology um, remote learning is going to completely revolutionize education. I've always thought that our system of education has looked the same for a long time, not because it was antiquated and like stale, but because it was probably evolutionarily robust, that it was meeting a whole set of latent needs that we didn't even know were there. And it just fit well into everything from like kids' lives and families' lives at the K-12 level, but also this like deeper thing about why is it that we have so many young people go away, almost have like a pre-adult experience, still supervised, but getting educated with more freedom. The point of all this is like, I think our systems of schools are set up in a way um, that have lots of different components to them that add up to something beautiful and great. And a lot of the pro-tech people, I think, have made a mistake over the past 10, 15, 20 years by just seeing education as, like, they disaggregated it and thought that the most important thing was content delivery, and they thought that the cheapest way to do content delivery was online, and so they came up with these different modules for doing it without recognizing that schooling is a whole lot more than that, and so for everybody who thinks that there might be a revolution in K-12. People are realizing that online learning is possible. Maybe it wasn't scalable quickly during this crisis, but lots of great things will happen. Or that higher education, a four-year thing, can actually turn into a remote experience. My view, like I would bet a whole lot of money that says no. college and even k-12 is way more than content delivery and skills development it's this entire package and i don't think all of the great content MOOCs, whatever kind of things we've experimented in the past are going to compensate for all of that so put me in the camp of like short-selling all of the bold predictions that we're going to see dramatic changes, like increases in the amount of online learning two, three years from now.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. and I think people are saying like parents are shocked to find out that their kids actually do two to three hours max of actual learning per day. You know, hmm. even though they're in the building for seven or eight hours, I think a whole lot of parents gonna be like, that's fine as long as they're there for seven hours. <laughs> you hmm. know, that's fine with me. Do the two to three hours, let them go to gym, lunch, recess, all that's good for them too. And, you know, if you have a job, you need your kids to be somewhere. I think the value of that has really emerged. Like this idea that, you know, everyone's going to want to homeschool after that, after this, I'm not buying it. I think a lot of people would be like, no, I mean, it was interesting. No, thank you. I like a teacher coming up with lessons plans, giving them to my children and that they're there somewhere else for most of the day.
1: Yeah. The model of education is woven into the lives, not just of families, but of communities. Like, the high school basketball games, but also sure. the schedules of buses and daycare providers or after school programs, and like how you think about homework, like uh, all of this stuff, uh, like it's a, an old growth force. It's grown up together, and you can't just sort of like pull one piece of uh, of it out and like assume everything else is going to stay the same. Like, yeah, if all of a sudden fifty million public school families are going to be asked to do this in perpetuity you're not just messing with schooling you're messing with work and uh, child care and um so much more so i think um there's going to be we're going to quickly revert back to and maybe even appreciate a whole lot more of the existing system
0: well um as mike mcshane said luckily for us uh we will have limited years of research on pre-pandemic, post-pandemic <laughs> impact on education because I don't think we've even hit the very tip of the iceberg at this point. There's Correct. going to be so much that's going to emerge and it's going to be, you know, interesting to see how it unfolds. Um, good and bad, but I I appreciate you ending us on a very positive note because I don't want to be doom and gloom too much these days. You know, there's, there's positives that'll come out of this. I think you're right.
1: Well, thank you for interpreting what I said as positive, like I generally feel pretty gloomy about this. Uh, This has been like tough on a whole lot of families and a whole lot of teachers and I think people are getting through it, Um, but yeah, we're, I imagine when the history books are written 20 years from now about this era, what are they going to say? Um, We probably don't know about the total effects on the economy or on kids or on schools or on families but this is, this is going to be something that shows up in textbooks this era, just like 9-11 and just like the Great Recession did. This is a, a major, major life, social, historical event.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to see, to be part of. Never thought I would. Never thought schools would close, but there we are. Here we are. All right, well, so good to talk to you, Andy.
1: Well, it's a treat. Anytime you want to have me on, Love I'm here. To- Thank you for listening to the Show Me Institute podcast. Find more at showmeinstitute.org.